0: In this episode, I am joined by Dr. Tyler Standiford, a sports biomechanics PhD. Tyler works as the lead biomechanics researcher for Superspeed Golf. Through the research in his lab, he has been trying to figure out how to help us increase clubhead speed. He was also very involved in the recent changes to the Superspeed Golf protocols, which we discuss. If you are interested in clubhead speed and or speed training, I am sure you will enjoy this episode. Just before we get started, a reminder that fit for golf has its own app. Golfers of all ages and all standards are making huge strides in their golf performance, fitness and health. There are programs to suit everyone and there is an abundance of material, whether you're working out at home or in the gym. Visit fitforgolf.blog app to find out more you can get 20% off a 12 month subscription with the code FFGPOD. Now to Dr. Tyler Standiford. Tyler Standiford, thank you very much for joining me today. How are you doing?
1: Doing great, yeah, happy to be here with you, Mike.
0: Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time. Would you mind telling us a little bit about your background and then uh, also what you are now doing with Super Speed Golf?
1: Yeah, for sure. So uh, my background was, um, so I have a a PhD in biomechanics. um, And for the past uh, about seven years, I've been a biomechanics professor at Utah Valley University, uh, where I teach uh, a biomechanics class and then a musculoskeletal anatomy class. Um, And probably for the first six years I was here, I did a lot of research related to kind of sports movements, force production, motion capture type stuff, Um, and mostly focused on running uh, and a lot of jumping and landing tasks with our athletic teams. Uh, But golf is really my passion. It's actually the reason why I got a PhD in biomechanics. And so um, over about the course of the past year, um, I've been able to do a little bit of work with Super Speed Golf where uh, just they've kind of given me the green light to research any question that I want um, and so I've been doing that, I guess, now for about a year and a half now, doing various research studies uh, on on some of their protocols, their, their products, and kind of seeing what happens as a result of speed training.
0: Excellent. We're going to dig a lot into... <laughs> what super speed is and what it accomplishes and how it does so um something that i'd like to ask is what was your phd on and why was it golf that led you down that path
1: yeah it's funny so my phd was actually i looked at how uh older adults with total knee replacements walked up and down stairs um and so interestingly enough i was i was going to be a, a doctor well a real doctor my my son teases me that i'm not a real doctor um And so I was going to be a real doctor, but had a biomechanics professor in undergrad who told me, man, if I liked the game of golf, I could do so many cool things with biomechanics. And I went up and talked to him after class that day and totally changed the trajectory of my life. I I went from being a a real doctor to being a fake doctor. Um, And at that point, it was like I knew I just needed skills to analyze golf swings. I didn't didn't care what it was. So it led me to, to Knoxville, Tennessee. My advisor there specialized in knee arthritis and knee replacements. So I said, hey, great, you're using force plates and motion capture. So I spent three years, um, probably 50, 60 hours a week, watching people walk up and down stairs, reading about people walking up and down stairs. And when I got my first job, I have not uh, looked at, read or analyzed any data of people walking up and down stairs.
0: Yeah, and I'm sure you never will again either.
1: Oh, definitely not. I mean, I still notice how people walk up and downstairs, but but the beauty of the university I'm at now is that I have every piece of equipment a biomechanist could ever want, and I have the green light to do whatever research that I'm passionate about. Um, and so it started with all these sports things, but ultimately I've been piecing together a golf biomechanics lab, um, and now I have a lab with you know force plates, motion capture, I've got a track man, um, I've got a putting analysis system. I mean, I, basically anything I want to do golf research with. So,
0: Yeah, we'll be setting up my visit when we're finished yes. chat here. I yeah, I've I, got guess I some, need to get there.
1: Yeah, I've got some fun stuff that I'm actually just uh, got approval for that uh, is coming out. I'll be here in the fall, so I'd love to have you out to visit.
0: Excellent. So, Tyler, as you said, you've been working with Superspeed Golf for about the last year and a half. Superspeed recently updated their protocols can you let us know what the main changes were and why they were made
1: Yeah, so that was actually one of the first things that they chatted with me about was a take a look at our protocols and and see what you think in terms of you know how they currently look and and where you think changes could be made and experiment with yourself with other golfers in your lab and so um there were a couple big changes i think uh, the first one was as we moved through the protocols, how they originally were, were set up, we really increased the number of swings that they got into those level four, level five. I mean, our, like our level five protocol was like 183 total swings in a, in a single speed session, um, which ultimately just felt like a lot of swings to me. Um, I, you know, I felt like it, about 90 each side, just to yeah, uh, yes, make that yeah. clear for people. Yeah, good point. Yeah. yeah, so it would have been 90 dominant swings, 90 non dominant swings. Um, and that was something that, you know, I kind of at least played around with a little bit. You, you look a little research, I think, in the golf world and even training world outside of golf where there's maybe a little more research. It just seemed like a lot. It seemed like a, a big stress. And, and I think with speed training, adherence to the training protocols probably trumps anything you're actually maybe doing in the protocols. And I think to have people doing 183 swings at the end of that, I just think, you know, maybe the effectiveness was really uh, kind of uh, lost, I guess you could say. Um, yeah, well, so it was, it was something where that was kind of my first thing was, Hey, let's, let's shrink these numbers. let so now I think we start at 39 swings in the, the first protocol. Uh, and then we go to just, uh, over 50. Um, and again, that would be, I guess, 18 or 19 each side, 25 each side. Um, and, and that was a big part of it where, Hey, let's just, let's get some protocols in place where we know people can do these from start to finish.
0: So by the end of the protocols now, the golfers are basically making about half or just just over half the amount of swings they were previously on each side, about 50 versus 91 or so.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And well, and, and actually even a little bit less than that, because because some of those later protocols now are, are 26 swings per side. So it's actually more like a quarter of the swings per side um, that they're doing. Um, and I think that was a, a, an important change, again, just to get some adherence to, because I don't, I don't think, I mean, to know that right stimulus, and, and you can appreciate this probably better than, than I can with what you do, Mike, but finding that appropriate stimulus for the golfer, I just think some of those later protocols were maybe overshooting the stimulus. So that was something I looked at. Another big piece that, that was something I wanted to change was uh, rest periods. Um so uh usually how it was was laid out was they would do the dominant and then the non-dominant swings, they'd switch drill positions. So there'd be some natural places where they would have some rest, but ultimately they were really just going through those, you know, 39 or then 75 and then 180 swings without really much rest, just switching from right to left sides. And so that was something I really experimented with extensively in my lab, where I placed a lot of different rest periods. I tried rest periods after every swing. I tried rest periods after every drill position, switching from non-dominant to dominant. I tried different length rest periods um, and I measured speed outputs. And, And what I found was what led to the highest speed. And that was kind of my goal was how can I get each rep to be the highest speed? I found that if I could insert a rest period after about 12 swings, it seemed like those speeds would jump up for that next subsequent group. And so Now, if you see in our protocols, we always say, take that kind of 60 to 90 second rest uh, before you move to that heaviest club swing drill positions.
0: Okay. I have gone through the new protocols, like read through the manual, but I I can't remember just now off the top of my head. Do you still go from like one set dominant for say five dominant and then break and then five non-dominant? of the same stick and the same drill before moving on. So you go right, left, right, left, right, left, yep. et cetera, through. So you still flip-flop yep. between them. Yeah,
1: still flip-flop between three right, three left, uh, green then blue, or, or light then medium, and then that rest before the red. And so that that rest period, I think, was something that that I saw almost every golfer who I did that with. Um, if If I gave them that rest period, I saw their red club swing speeds would increase compared yep. to if they just went straight through. But I even tried things where, hey, let, let's take some rest between every single swing and see if we can enhance those speed gain, those speeds as well. And and that was almost too much rest. It was almost like yeah. it wasn't that wasn't eliciting those highest speeds. So that was another big change we made.
0: Yeah, you could almost get into a little bit of a groove nearly when you have a couple of swings. I think people notice that there's probably a yeah. few things going on there.
1: Yeah, um, I think. I think like you say, Mike, like I know golf is a series of one swing and then rest, but I think that groove of trying to teach people how to fill these fast swings, I think, I think having a few swings in a row was, was helpful for them.
0: Yeah. Probably a little bit of almost like a learning or coordination effect, but not so many that you've built up any fatigue. Yeah, exactly. Um, you've also changed some of the actual swing drills that are, that are in the protocols. That's something that I'm really interested in. Obviously, with speed training, we have to move at maximal speeds to get the specific adaptations, but I'm, I'm definitely interested in how different drills can potentially influence a golfer's mechanics without them really focusing on mechanics. You're just giving them a slightly different task. Can you dig into maybe what um, drills have left the program, what drills have come in, and maybe how you decided on that?
1: Yeah, yeah, those are great questions. So um, I mean we keep the normal swings in every single protocol has normal swings as, as one of the drill positions. Um obviously I think being able to transfer these swings to what you're actually gonna use on the golf course becomes important. Um, and so that's something that we we kept in every single one of them. Um another drill position that we really liked because of what you're describing and some of these sequencing and, and getting force going to that lead leg earlier in the swing were our step change drills. Um, And so we kept all of those step change drills in there, either just the kind of the step forward versus kind of a step back and then step forward. So those are drills that that we really feel like work really well. I've started to actually do uh, a few data collections on those just to see what's happening with the ground reaction force production in those drills. And and as as you'd expect, you see um, elevated uh, vertical forces on that lead leg in those step change drills and you see that force going there a little bit earlier when those drills are done correctly. Um, and so that's, that's something that we, we really like a lot, um, drills that we got rid of, uh, the one that was probably debated the very most among us were the kneeling swings. Um, and that was one where I think the purpose behind those kneeling swings, uh, is, is sound. I think it, they can be utilized well in terms of kind of, uh, some of the things we're trying to do with kind of the pelvic motion, but as I watched people do those drill positions, I just felt like there were very few that were maybe doing the drill the correct way. Um, and also I think there were people that it was hard to do that drill. You know, if I'm doing this out on the range and I kneel down on my, you know, my bright white golf pants, you know, I don't have a pad or a towel. I, I think that was something. So we, we got rid of those um, kneeling swings. We replaced those in, in the protocol with some heel stomp swings. Again, just some ways to really initiate uh, that force on the lead leg during the downswing. Um, and then a, a big thing was in the level four and five protocols. Uh, we brought in a, a sprint drill, which is only done on the dominant side where they're kind of rapidly kind of swinging back and forth. Um, we've seen some things where, where there might be some potential increases there and in some of the, the lag that we would see maybe between the hands and the club. And so that was a drill that we kind of moved up uh, in those, those protocols.
0: Those sprint swings, um, you can correct me if I'm wrong for people who haven't seen them or aren't familiar with the name. They're basically continuous swings. So like you swing into your finish, and then basically the back swing for your next swing starts from your finish position. So you're basically doing swings in a row without resetting and starting yeah. the takeaway from the normal position. Yeah, there's something that I you I think anybody who's, you know, made practice swings has tried some of those because it feels quite nice. I think there's definitely something there to the pressure shifts and the sequencing, yeah. they they definitely feel good. Yeah. Um, the thing, the only thing I found a little bit frustrating with those is um, it can be quite hard to get the speed measured on the radar. Uh, yeah. It tends it tends to read the backswing. Um, yeah. I don't know if you found a way around that yet, but that that can yeah. be annoying sometimes. Do you ha-
1: do you have one of the newer PRGRs, or do you have the older? Yeah,
0: one? I, I have the new one.
1: Yeah. I have found that the newer one picks up less of the swings towards it than the older ones. It's a little bit better than that. The hard part in those, and I think you're bringing that up, Mike becomes like, um, even if just on the step change drill, if I'm kind of pumping that club forward a little bit and then bringing it back to try and get in maybe a more rhythmic motion, Dr. Quan will refer to that as that rhythmic motion, which I think can be really beneficial. Even those it's like, I just have tried to like time it up where it's like, it's, it's registers the forward and then is spitting that out as I swing back. But yeah, it's, it's not perfect. Cause what we don't want, I mean, it's like, I don't want the golfer like ripping that club to the inside. So it doesn't even come across that zone or coming out way high, like a baseball style swing, you know, bad ideas there. So. Yeah,
0: of course. Um, something else was, um, you've included maintenance and Mm -hmm. speed periods. Can you discuss what those are and again, maybe why?
1: Yeah. And so this, this comes from, again, kind of my work in, in kind of the exercise science field, just as I watched the way the other kind of trainings are done, um, just in need as we're really intensely, um, activating our, our system, right. Intensely, um, stressing our body. I really do think there needs to be periods of times where we're ramping up that speed training and then where, where we're maintaining that speed training. And so, as I looked at it, Uh, what I found is that when golfers came in, if I could get them to about eight to 10 weeks of training. um, So somewhere maybe the 27 to 30 range of sessions seems like they could, they gain those speeds and then could kind of hang on to them for a while um, became a little bit more permanent, Um, but they needed to do something after they did that. And so we came up with this idea of, of there's some good research to suggest when you're training these high velocity uh, movements really just doing those things once a week can actually maintain the benefits that you had before. Um, and I think I think it creates this really nice system where you could train in the off-season and maintain during in-season um, and just give your body a little bit of rest uh, for that next cycle when you're going to try and ramp up speeds again.
0: Yeah, definitely. I know it's not um, specifically like what super speed are doing, but – that works really nicely for the listeners who are also doing things in the gym where there might be certain periods of the year where they're going to emphasize strength development and then maybe coming closer to uh, the season, they might put the brakes on strength a little bit and increase the emphasis on speed, um, which yeah. would be kind of typically observed in high-level athletes in a lot of sports where the, there's a different emphasis depending on the time sure. of year.
1: Yeah, and that's, that's one of those things where in terms of a long-term study – I always like to create um, uh, like uh, the fact that super speed maybe needs to hang on to some of the things I'm doing. So if I can create a two-year study where I follow golfers through these cycles, you know, then they'll keep me on board helping them out for another couple of years. So
0: yeah, that, that would be great. Definitely. So kind of the first question that comes to mind there is, I don't know if you've had golfers going through the new protocols for long enough or if you've been able to track them, but with the volumes almost halving in the later stages of the protocols. Have you noticed any differences in speed results?
1: Yeah. So, uh, I, I really can't, can't speak to that. The, the one study that I did just followed people through the level one protocols. And that was a a six week training protocol where they were just making the 39 swings. Um, I did have a few that are currently doing the level two, which jumps them up to, you know, the, the 53, I think. And, um, but I I have not seen them any further to know, you know, what's going to happen to speed gains because we've dropped those from 180 to 60. So I, I, I'm, I'm the kind of guy that I don't want to, I don't want to state things that I don't have data to support. That's my background is to generate data. And so I, I, I don't know. I'm excited to see what happens. Um, I I really would hypothesize Mike that we're not going to see any drop offs in gains. Um, and in fact, I think if adherence again increases, you may even see with some of those rest periods and these cycles of training, a more maybe steady jump of speeds potentially.
0: Yeah, I think so. That that was probably the main, you know, maybe bit of like constructive criticism I would get from people about speed sticks when they'd gone through them. It was like, it worked really, really well. But man, like those last protocols, they just took too long and I was worn out. And I think, like you were saying, the adherence piece, like mentally preparing yourself for 90 swings a side versus maybe like 30 to 50 is obviously very, very different. Just before we move on, um, mm-hmm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you about the results of that study that you did on the level one protocols, just to recap for people about what's changed and kind of what that means. So obviously with the volume, the number of swings, We need to have enough so that there's a strong enough stimulus to to get the adaptations we're looking for. But we kind of hit a point of diminishing returns where more and more swings may not really lead to more gains, Mm -hmm. but it does lead to more fatigue and ramp up the injury risk and even just the motivation to do it. So if you can get close to or the same gains with less, that's kind of what you're going for with those.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, That's great.
0: With the rest periods, people tend to rush through these things too quickly. Don't realize that you need to have essentially like a full gas tank and not be huffing and puffing or speeds will drop down. Um, A slight change in some of the drills, mainly the kneeling drills coming out and a continuous drill called the sprint drill going in. You think that might be particularly good for maybe wrist mechanics Yeah. Whereas whereas a lot of them seem to like wrist mechanics would probably improve from a lot of the step drills anyway, because it's all related to sequencing. But a lot of the drills are really changing how we're pushing into the ground with our feet, as opposed to more of a direct emphasis on the wrist. And then the last one is periodizing the year a little bit. So you have phases where you're really trying to ramp the speed up, probably when you're not playing competitively as much. And then when that takes a focus, you can ramp, you can kind of uh, level or go back down into your maintenance phase, do a little bit less, but keep the gains. Is that a pretty accurate summary of what you'd say? I think
1: it's it's a great summary. And I think that that piece of the one day a week, I've I've had a lot of people as I've gone uh, around to kind of share some of these new changes, you know, they'll say, is one day a week enough? And, you know, does it matter if I do it? And and the answer is, yes, it matters. (laughs) Like Hmm. you have to do it once a week or you're going to end up starting from scratch when you go back into that season. So find the time to do the one day a week, maintain those speeds, and then get ready to to do it again. I think that's a great summary.
0: Yeah, a piece I'd put on that too that people forget about is like, so yes, speed is is one part of it for sure, but also in terms of just injury injury risk and aches and pains not coming up, the value of keeping that stress on your muscles and tendons once a week for let's say a six-month season versus not doing it at all. And then jumping straight back into one of, you know, the more um, vigorous phases when winter comes back around, Mm -hmm. that's just screaming for like a potential, you know, overuse or soft tissue injury to pop up. Whereas if you've been doing it once a week for like 15 minutes, you know, you're, you're going to have that conditioning still there and you're going to have the benefit of, of not starting from scratch, as you said.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point.
0: Um, the next question is one that always fascinates me, Tyler, mainly because it's somewhere where my knowledge is definitely lacking, based on my background, um, and guys like you are, are who I can I can pick it up from. But when golfers are training for speed, their feedback is a launch monitor or a or a radar. You're able to track changes on force plates and with 3D motion capture, in addition to the changes in speed what things typically change on force plates are in 3D when you see golfers go up in speed. Like this is something that always um, I found fascinating because when I started uh, selling programs on the app, I'd have golfers, you know, writing to me and saying, you know, let's just say, Mike, I went through your 12-week program. I gained six miles an hour club head speed or whatever. And I'm like, that's great. But all I know is that the club head is moving six miles an hour faster at impact. I've I've never met the person. I've never seen them swing. I have no idea what's actually changed to allow that speed go up. Like, are they, you know, bigger range of motion? Is it bigger separation in the downswing? Are they pushing harder under their lead foot? I've never been able to measure that, but you have. So can you dig into what you typically see change if a player has a significant bump in speed?
1: Yeah, no. And, and that's been kind of one of the fun things I think I've been able to do is, There's such good stuff out there, of people that are getting those speed gains. So we know they're gaining speed. We have no doubt they are. But I think if we could dive into why they're gaining it, I think it helps us maybe develop even better protocols or better products that can tailor different pieces of of that speed chain. And so where I first did the study was focused solely on um, the force production. Um, And this was uh, part of the reason I did it this way first was just because of COVID my research uh, group here at utah valley university wouldn't let me put markers on people so i wasn't able to get any of the kinematic sequencing so i thought well let's just do kinetic sequencing i can put some markers on the club and track where the club is in the swing and at least get some ideas there and then see what's happening on these force plates uh, in terms of how they're transferring force trail and and lead legs and and and, just really quick for listeners sorry
0: will you just give like 20 second summary on what a force plate is just for anyone who who doesn't know and how you're using this to look at, look at what golfers are doing with their swing.
1: For sure. Yeah. So I I always explain to my students initially that a force plate is like a really expensive bathroom scale, um, that when you stand on it, it's measuring how hard your body's pushing on the ground. Um, the beauty of force plates is, uh, with mine, I can measure data 1000 frames per second, uh, so I get a lot of data points and I get data in three directions. So I can see what the golfer is doing, pushing up and down, or I guess pushing down and then the ground's reaction back to them pushing up. Uh, I can get uh, what's happening with that force as it pushes them maybe away from the target and maybe the force that pushes the, kind of behind them. Um, and then I have two force plates. So the beauty of what I can do is I can separate that to trail leg, lead leg, um, and just again, really get an idea of, of measuring that, and really the ground reaction force is mostly coming from our body's interaction with the ground. So if I have muscles that either are stronger or more efficient or can contract faster or better, that's going to increase or change either the magnitude of the ground reaction force, the timing of the ground reaction force, or the location of the ground reaction force. And I think all three of those are important pieces to the golf swing.
0: Excellent, thank you. So moving on then, What are things, you know, measures that you typically like to look at if, man, this guy's increased six miles an hour, where do you usually think of looking to, I bet this has changed or I bet this has changed?
1: Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm pretty fortunate, Mike, because I feel like I came into a world where there's some incredible bright minds in the world of golf biomechanics. And so what I did is I started looking at other research in golf biomechanics and, and the main place where I actually started was with uh, Dr. Kwan at Texas Women's University uh, he's done a wonderful golf things with, with force stuff, right? A lot of great minds in the golf biomechanics world, but his stuff with force plates is, is pretty unique to what he does. Um, and when I did a lot of his certifications and trainings, um, he reports a lot that those forces that are the highest correlated to club head speed are our lead leg forces during the downswing. Uh, and, and particular, it's kind of these three things. It's, it's how much force do we have going up? How much force do we have going away from the target? And then how much force do we have going behind the golfer? Uh, And these all do different things, right? We can think about them in the sense of kind of force leading to some type of motion or change in motion. Um, And so the biggest changes I saw were in that vertical force production, Uh, meaning as golfers started to swing, um, as they initiated that downswing, they sent more force to the lead leg and they sent it there earlier on in the downswing. Um, And these increases, we're in a range of I'm looking at numbers here so I can make sure I give you right numbers, but the maximum vertical force went up in the range of about 13 to 15% for these golfers. Um, and it's one of those things where, you know, I've been doing a lot of work with our athletic teams. Um, and so 13%, it's like, well, what does that mean? Right. I mean, we're talking about 13%, but I think if you think about a training effect to think, okay, they did the level one protocol. So this was six weeks about 45 minutes of training a week is what they did. And they had an increase of force production of, of 14 to 16%. Well, every strength and conditioning coach on campus here would do exactly what I told them if I promised them those kind of results. So, so these are significant changes in terms of, of kind of these numbers. Um, and that was something that was you know, cool to see. Um, the other things that we saw a lot of were still these other forces. So the, the force that was pointing away from the target Um, that increased about 10% as a result of the training. And
0: I was thinking- Sorry, so vertical force is pretty easy to understand. That's a golfer pushing down, straight down into the ground. For forces pushing away from the target, is that a reaction force? So the golfer has actually pushed their foot into the ground in the direction of the target. And then the reaction force is what's being measured at going away from the target.
1: Exactly. Yep. That, that's the exact description. And I think the video I like to show a lot of, and, and you see this with long drive players or even players that use their footwork Well, um, what you see what happens with that lead leg is it typically does three things as they start to downswing and kind of move through the foot moves off the ground, signifying some large vertical force. The force will move kind of behind their body signifying that they pushed really hard towards the ball. I guess you could think about it. Mm-hmm. And then the ground opened them up, pushed them back. And then the last one is the one you just suggested. And if you watch from certain angles, you can see that their foot does like a, it's almost like a little rainbow, right? Where it kind yep. of goes up back and then backwards away from the target. Um, and so I think if you have that visual in mind of these long drive players, it makes a lot of sense with what you know, someone like Dr. Kwan would see in his lab in terms of high correlations to club speed and then for me to then see that, hey, they're using this lead leg and it's increasing in magnitudes of anywhere between 10 to 15 percent um, in those variables on that lead leg. You know, we're seeing a much better utilization of the ground in these in these golfers.
0: What would 10 to 15 percent increase in vertical force mean for club head speed? Is it is it vertical you were talking about, How the 10 to 15 increase? Yeah, vertical. Are the three of them by.
1: Yeah, well, the three of them combined, like the lowest was the ten percent, which was the away from the target. The other two, the vertical and the kind of behind the golfer, were kind of in the thirteen to fifteen percent range. Um, man, the question is, uh, what does that mean in terms of club head speed? Um, gosh, I mean, so club head speed gains. What we saw in the study, um, on average, was about a, a five mile per hour increase in swing speed. Uh, that ended up being about five and a half percent for these golfers. So you, you think of your golfer who gains six miles per hour. They probably had somewhere between 10 and 12 percent increases in these in these horses.
0: Yeah, that's great. Who were these golfers in your study? What what type of person were they like? Obviously, if if, you know, a PGA Tour pro or long driver or someone who's been training hard goes through it versus someone, you know, who doesn't train at all and is it has, you know, the newbie effect is going to be much higher, just like any other, you know, training intervention. So what were these people's uh, profiles?
1: Yeah. So these, this, this specific study here. So these were about, I mean, they're, they're 10 handicapped golfers. Average age was like 33. Um, And the average starting swing speed in this group was right around uh, 90, like 95, 96 was kind of right in the, in the range there um so high 90s not quite 100 um so that was kind of their profile in terms of what they could do in terms of what they were doing outside of speed training right what was their what was their makeup um i would say most of them were maybe your typical recreational golfer that weren't doing much for training at all uh, yep. i would say
0: yeah that's cool though because it shows and, and like i've talked about this before a lot on twitter and stuff like that is like the the kind of newbie gains that are available are so drastic like we should milk them for all they're worth like a golfer can be i know your study you said was six weeks and that was like you said five or six miles an hour average gain yeah Yeah. like in in six months a golfer could probably gain 10 or 12 or 15 miles an hour which is enormous when you're getting roughly two and a half yards of distance per per mile an hour and it's not like it's particularly intrusive or particularly hard you know
1: for sure and and i think as you think about one, one particular golfer that i thought was a really interesting one was one that was doing a lot of strength training um but they were a newbie in the terms of speed training so mm-hmm. very strong a good good muscular strength there um and they had gains where where their actual vertical ground reaction force increased they almost put 30% more body weight into the ground on that lead leg as a result of the training, their club speeds jumped by almost 16 miles per hour in six weeks.
0: Yeah, that's that's a, a, like a point that I'm very interested in because when you're talking about um, like f- the forces under the lead leg in the golf swing, you're talking about how large they are and you're talking about the timing of them when they occur. So, like something that I've always you know, battle with or thought of, and my opinions of it have definitely changed over time as I've tried to get better at golf and increase swing speed, is that how much of the contribution comes from leg strength or leg power? Because obviously our ability to push down into the ground is going to be limited by that Mm -hmm. if you take someone with very strong legs versus very weak legs, but also just our swing technique. Mm -hmm. And the person you're dealing with there is clearly someone with very strong legs, but probably didn't really know at all how to use them in the golf swing. So all of a sudden you take someone who's very high on the physical capability scale, but quite low on the, on the technique and timing and how to use them scale. And all of a sudden there's a, there's a huge jump.
1: Yeah. And I think when you talk about the technique and timing, this is something that really fascinated me with the speed training. I expected forces to increase. That wasn't a shock to me. But some of the, the intricate timing things, like even some of the, the, the loading the trail leg, if that's something that, you know, a golfer wants to do in the backswing, even those, those forces and distributions increased as a result of it. Um, the timing of it, this golfer that I just brought up, he was peaking his, his lead leg force when he hit the ball, which is about, you know, that that's the worst time you could peak the lead leg force. Cause you can't transfer anything out to the golf club or the golf ball. And just as a result of swinging these clubs fast, he went from peaking at impact to peaking at 83% of the downswing is when he was peaking. So all of a sudden, you know, no wonder this guy had 16 miles per hour gain because his force skyrocketed, but also the timing of it improved so drastically. And I just love to see these techniques and mechanics improve. And all they had to do was swing these clubs really fast.
0: Yeah, it's kind of digs into we we hear some coaches talk about like self-organization, which is a fancy way of saying that people figure it out when you when you give them a pretty simple task and you give them some feedback and you say, make this radar read a higher number. All of a sudden, people tap into things that are probably innate in us just from evolution, like throwing spears and
1: stuff like that, you know, for sure. (laughs) And I think to say, I love that you bring up this point, Mike, because I think a lot of the golfers that we work with and see they have the speed there. Um, and I think, yes, there's a, there's this group that for sure strength has to be a component of it. Right. In our ideal world, we have our users all working with someone like you who's giving them the strength. Um, and also then they're getting the speed from the the speed training. But I think there's so many golfers out there that, that are like, I don't know, they're, they're, they're not, gain, they're not producing speed at the level of their strength, if that makes sense. Like they 100%. have the speed in there and they could, they could pick up six to eight miles per hour without ever touching a weight. And then once they have those gains, okay, now we got to look and peel back some layers a little bit and see exactly where your speed's leaking out. But I would say most of us could pick up it so quickly because they're, they're, not, they're not maximizing their strength.
0: Yeah, I, I 100% agree with that. And it's something that my opinion on has shifted in the last couple of years. Definitely like coming from like a strength and conditioning background, that's where I was comfortable and that's what I'd done a lot more of. But as I got more and more into golf, like I could definitely see there was so many people, like even if I just compare them to myself, there was definitely lots of people who I was definitely stronger and more powerful then but they had similar or higher club head speeds. And you kind of start thinking, you know, what's going on here? And it's not that physical capabilities aren't important. They clearly are, but it's it's the blend of the two. And I think in terms of not quick fixes, but how quickly things can change, it's it's like coordination and timing and mechanics that can make a huge difference. Like if, if someone with poor mechanics goes to a, a good golf coach, they might have an eight mile an hour increase in 10 minutes because they're not using their bodies efficiently at all, you know, or if they start swinging the speed sticks and are something similar and they figure out, Oh man, that's how I make the radar say one Oh five instead of 97. Like you're not getting that with, you know, going to the gym and lifting weights. Like that's a process that takes time to build up. Um, I've another couple of questions on force, especially Mm -hmm. ground force, um, and the timing. So something you mentioned is that, uh, players with higher swing speeds or when players increase their swing speed, they tend to have higher force under their lead foot and they tend to start producing it earlier. Uh, you Actually, what you said is they tend to start producing it earlier in the downswing. Mm-hmm. And that got me thinking, how early, sorry, I'll rephrase that, do these players tend to start creating pressure under their lead foot in, say, the downswing? while their club is still moving in the backswing. So is the club still in the backswing when they start this pressuring down with the left foot in what would be the downswing, even though the club is still moving in the backswing? I hope that makes sense.
1: You know, it makes perfect sense. And, and, and I, I'm, I'm pulling up some of my data here. I thought you'd probably want to dive into the, the, the details of some of this sport stuff. And so um, what I did is I, I depicted the different points of the golf swing Um, and so what you're describing right there is this idea of, Hey, I'm I'm getting to the top of my swing and, and yes, I kind of want to load some things in that trail leg, but we see those very best players that have already initiated a movement forward before they ever finish that backswing. Um, and so interestingly enough, those forces also increased kind of on that vertical leg, if that makes, or on that lead leg, if that makes sense. So when we get them to the top of that swing, they're actually, Yes, they're putting more force overall, if that makes sense. So they're putting more force overall. A lot of that's going to the trail leg to load the back. But then the way they initiate that forward swing is also improving very early on in the swing. Now, a a variable that I brought up, Mike, that I don't like, I want to explain this in a way that's not super convoluted and complex biomechanically. But I think it was something that was really interesting to me to your question, which is this idea of where do we need the club to be moving the very fastest? And I think, well, we want the club moving the fastest when it gets to the ball. Um, if we have those golfers that that almost generate so much force so quickly in the downswing, and then they lose some of the abilities to sustain that throughout. Um, and something that, that I measure a lot is impulse, which is just a force applied over a period of time. And I've seen you talk about this. So I know you understand it well, but the idea of, well, hey, what I can do is I can, increase my force, or I can increase the time of that applied force. Both of those things are going to lead to changes in the momentum or the velocity of a golf club. And so one thing that I thought was really interesting is when they initiate the downswing between, let's say like P4 and P5, as they're kind of getting from downswing to club vertical, what was cool about that is the time between those two events uh, increased uh, quite dramatically as a result of the study. So increased from about 0.13 seconds to about 0.17 seconds. So about a 35% increase in time from kind of where they're transitioning to then the club being vertical. But what that did is it allowed for a large increase in the impulse during that time period. And the beauty of that is what that actually allowed them to do is start transferring that impulse earlier on in the swing then allowed them to deliver the club so that as I get down to what's happening at impact now those those times are decreasing drastically but they're doing it because they increase the impulse via a longer time of that applied force and I thought that was a really cool thing in the study
0: so if a player's club head speed has gone up but it's taking them more. So obviously we're measuring clubhead speed at impact, Mm -hmm. but it's taken a player more time to get from top of the backswing to you're saying shaft parallel, sorry, perpendicular to the ground in the downswing
1: perpendicular. Yep.
0: That, that strikes me as happening because the player is using a better sequence. It's lower body, pelvis, torso. Then eventually the energy comes into the arms So they'll have that beneficial of all, or the benefit of all those stretch shortening cycles and the big chain that we've all, you know, read the articles about and seen the tips of. Whereas in the past, as they were getting to the top, they might have went quicker with their hands early. So they've moved from top of the backswing to shaft perpendicular to the ground faster, but they've basically wasted their speed early. They've lost their sequencing, so it's almost feeling like you're delaying the transition in terms of how quickly the hands or grip move so that you can use your body better and then the speed comes later. Does that make yeah. sense?
1: It makes perfect sense. And I'm glad you talk about it that way because I think that then merges kind of what we're seeing data wise. And I wish I had full kinematics on this so I could show that, but but I haven't thought of another way to describe that or, or a different way than the way you described it. And I think it has to be indicative of better sequencing and a yeah. slowing down of those arms early on, which is what we want.
0: Yeah, I think too, like for anyone, I, so I did a podcast with Sasha McKenzie, mm-hmm. and one of the things he talked about as a big predictor for speed was like essentially wrist angle, called, we call it lag angle just to make it simple, but essentially wrist angles late in the downswing was a huge predictor of clubhead speed. And if you think of someone who, let's say, throws the hands early, like we're talking about in the people who moved very quickly, from top of backswing to shaft perpendicular versus the person who has that more delayed transition where the body has started moving. And let's say the movement of the club and hands is a little bit later. They're probably going to have kept a lot more of that lag, which can be released later. So that's, it's really, really cool. You've seen that.
1: Yeah. And I think it's all you, you talk about Sasha, who, again, what another bright biomechanist. And I love seeing the things that he does and pair it with the things I'm seeing. And I think what you just described there is like, him seeing that from the hand and club interaction. And then I'm seeing it in the data from the foot and ground. And now we're attacking speed from both ends, which I think is such a great way to look at it.
0: Yeah, that's cool. Now I just need to figure out how to do it when there's a golf club in my hands (laughs) and I'm hitting a golf ball.
1: (laughs) That's the truth.
0: (laughs) Um, Great. So we're going to move on to non-dominant training, Tyler. Mm -hmm. Um, the value of non-dominant side swings for increasing clubhead speed has received some attention lately. For anyone not sure, non-dominant side swings refer to a right-handed golfer, swinging as if they were a left-handed golfer, and vice versa. I've expressed my skepticism a little bit on the value of them for increasing swing speed, but I'd love to know your opinion on the theories of why they may work. And also, I know you have dug into basically some testing on on what happens with non dominant. I'd I'd love to hear kind of yeah. your insights.
1: Yeah, and I think it's you know it's such a great uh, great question. And and when I look at non dominant training, at least when I first saw it, I you know I saw it in the super speed protocols, and I thought, okay, yeah, you're swinging the club left handed. I do a lot of exercises in the gym where I rotate to both sides, so cool, it, it makes sense. And and as I started to see why people described it. Um, I, I, there, there's some research that I've stumbled upon that I think we're just missing in the explanation of why non-dominant training might work. Okay, right? And I think you brought it up when we talk about it earlier, which is the newbie gains, right. Mm-hmm. Or these gains of people who haven't been used to moving fast. And, and those gains are primarily going to come from uh, central nervous system, neurological adaptations, right. I mean that, and we want to maximize that to the fullest extent possible Um, I, and especially I think early on in training. And Um, for
0: people who don't know what that is in simple terms, that basically means your brain gets better at recruiting muscle fibers you already have, particularly your fast switch muscle fibers. So if you're an untrained person, your life consists of driving to work, answering emails, driving home and playing golf on the weekends. You're not good at recruiting your fast switch muscle fibers because you never have a need for them. But when we, let's just say you can recruit 70% of them. Um, when you start doing high speed training or very heavy training, our body is forced to use these muscle fibers to carry out the task. So as we train, we get slightly better at recruiting these fast twitch fibers. And that's one of the reasons why we get basically faster when we start speed training in a very, very simplified explanation.
1: Yep. And I think that's a good explanation. Again, if we, can, if we can enhance or maximize that stimulus as much as possible, then we're going to get more speed gains. And so there, there just is some really fascinating research in other, in other fields where they'll actually show these dominant and non-dominant trainings of tasks and skills. And one in particular uh, actually measured brain activation. And what they found is that different parts of the brain were activated based on if they did the dominant or non-dominant task. And one of the things that was more like highly activated, that's that's a terrible way to say that, more more intensely activated uh, was the visual motor cortex during these non-dominant swings. Or it wasn't non-dominant swings, but it was non-dominant training of this task. Um, And there was enough there, Mike, for me to look at and say, you know, I've read all the theories about, you know, the car can't go faster than the brakes, and I think there's a piece to that, but, but I couldn't measure it. Um, and I saw some other things that I just wasn't, I didn't, I wasn't ready to quite measure when I stumbled upon this, it was something that I thought, and this just makes a lot of sense to me that I'm trying to activate the brain to a high level. And so I created a study and, and it wasn't a perfect study. And, and I recognize as a researcher that, um, there are a lot of limitations to this study, but I thought before I try and do the full fledged scale study, what I want to do is take some golfers and put them through speed training, um, but only ever have them actually swing from the non-dominant side during their speed training. So I just finished that study probably three weeks ago um, where I took a group of golfers, it was 10 golfers, and I had them on force plates again, um, and I brought them in, I, I took them through the level one protocols just like I did my first study group, and the only difference was here is I took them and I only had them do they were all right-handed golfers. So they only did left-handed speed training. So they, instead of doing three and three of each for the drill positions, they just did six left-handed swings. So, so same, you know, number of reps, just all left-handed. Um, and again, I looked at, okay, what's happening to their club head speed, what's happening to their force production. Um, and, and, you know, kind of what happens as a result. Cause I thought if, if non-dominant training doesn't work at all, then this shouldn't shouldn't show any kind of benefit, and if there's at least something there, it should show something that warrants further research. Was my yeah. thought. Um, and so what I found, so that interestingly enough, the two subsets of populations were very similar, very similar ages, very similar handicaps. None of them with speed training histories. Interestingly enough, this this group had really high baseline swing speeds, so their baseline swing speed average was 110 miles per hour. Um so these these were guys that were swinging the club fast to begin with. That was really the only difference between them. Baseline they were swinging about 10-12 miles per hour. They faster. must
0: have been pretty good golfers, were they? Did you
1: Well, what's funny about it is their handicap was the same as the first group. So the hand, right. the group hand, it was in kind of the 9 to 10 range. Oh wow, that's incredible. Yeah.
0: <laughs> to so. get a group of, to get a group of <laughs> golfers with a 109 average swing speed and to be 910 average handicap is wild.
1: Yeah, and I will say this about uh, a couple of the I mean I'm thinking through the these participants in terms of kind of experience with golf and a few of them have picked up golf but kind of athletes in former mm-hmm. lives right and so there okay. there was maybe some athletic prowess there um maybe newness to the game of golf but in yeah some some fast swingers and I did have in that in that subset I I think I had um, let's see. I had a one handicap, a three handicap. Uh, I did have one that was like a 28 handicap, mm-hmm. right. Um, but he played lacrosse, uh, was this, yes, one played yes, yes, golf, yes. right. Yep. So, um, and what I found was, so from an increase in speed and I just compared it to the, the, the original training study, I thought that's a good, at least it's a comparison, mm-hmm. not ideal. Cause they're not randomized, but it's a comparison. So they, those forces that we talked about, so the vertical increase by almost the same amount is about 13 and percent. That that kind of behind the golfer force that kind of maybe opens them up, that increased about the same amount is about 12 percent, um, so about the same. The force that really increased quite quite a bit more was the force that was away from the target. And that force increased by 30 percent in this non-dominant only training group um in terms of speed gains they ended up gaining about six and a half miles per hour of speed um that ended up being percentage wise about 5.8 percent so a little bit higher percentage um and what i did from a statistical standpoint i don't want to get too statistical but i I just calculated the effect size because and it's not a perfect way um but at least i could see hey what was the effect size of one study versus the other And, and the effect size on this study uh, was in the range of about 0.4. Um, now golf training studies that I think do a good job and find good significant increases in speed gains. Their effect sizes are maybe in the mid, mid 0.4s, 0.5s, things like that for club head speed. Um, but usually those, those, those studies are doing much more than 45 minutes of training a week. Yeah. So, so to see that effect size was, was pretty impressive. And the first one had a good effect size. It was, you know, point uh, I think high point twos, which again, for the amount of time they spent was very significant, but, um, you know, there, there was something there to me, Mike, that says, I want to, I want to dive into this deeper Yeah, because I'm seeing some improved ground mechanics as a result of only swinging left-handed fast.
0: Yeah. So kind of like, obviously with, you know, studies like this, we could talk all day about potentials, what ifs, you know, Mm -hmm. but you, you, you definitely think that, or well, right now, you think that there is something to the fact that it's non, it is swinging in the opposite direction as fast as you can. Like, for example, they increased their speed by six miles an hour. When speed increases, it's very common to see increases in the ground reaction forces. What I'm kind of getting at is that if we'd given them some type of speed and power training that wasn't swinging at all, like if we just got them jumping and slamming med balls or something like this, I'm pretty confident that their club head speeds would also, I don't know, obviously, but I'm pretty confident their club head speeds was, would also have increased. And we would we have seen similar changes in the ground mechanics? And then it's a case of, well, did the ground mechanics improve because their speed increased or because there was something to the non-dominant training? Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, it makes perfect sense, Mike. And and I think the, the ideal study, Mike, is a study where we match outputs, meaning whether you're doing uh, med balls or rotational strength training or jumps or sprints, everyone gets 45 minutes a week. That's all you get. You get three days a week, 15 minutes each time for your warm up and your exercise. Um, and we match the time of that output because I think you're right that the there could have been all these confounding variables and things going on. But but again, the fact that, that I saw, you know, these increases in ground reaction force that were similar um, to the first one that were in the areas where other researchers have shown they're important to the golf swing, um, you know, and, and my hypothesis behind it, Mike, would really be related to this idea of central nervous system activation. Like, that okay. would be my hypothesis. It would be that what happened is when they swung non-dominant, they activated their central nervous system to a really high extent because they were doing a task, like a dynamic systems theory, where they're doing a task that they know. Not only are they doing it faster, but they're doing it in this left-handed world that really locked in. It's a very novel. It's a very novel. stimulus, right? Yeah. And so I think at the very least, Mike, utilizing it as a way to really enhance some of these newbie gains and then transferring over i would love to you know it's like let's say i take i know you do a lot of dominant side only speed training with your players you know what if we take some of those guys who've been doing it for a year and put them into a a non dominant only training thing for six weeks and see what happens right yeah like i'm
0: i'm definitely not anti non-dominant training like if I thought that it was going to, going to increase my clubbed speed by three miles an hour in the next six weeks. I'd start as soon as we end the call. <laughs> you, know what, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. Like the, the reasons why I've suggested that people experiment maybe taking it out is is a couple of things really, like is that number one is the time element. Like if mm-hmm. someone is, is short on time, if you're doing the same volume of non-dominant swings, it's doubling the time. So if someone yeah. is tight on time it's one way of doing it and then the other one for me was it was doubling fatigue like if you're doing you know 45 swings or 30 swings in a session right and left it's doubling time doubling fatigue and if i wasn't confident or sure that it was adding to the benefits um then i was like well maybe you don't you don't need to do it um and it's it's interesting what you said and it's it's actually really interesting to think about something i have been considering is what you talked about in your study about just doing my speed training non-dominant for a while. But I'm kind of scared of then if it doesn't work yeah. after eight weeks. I'm like, man, <laughs> I should have been saying. But um, like a lot of those players that, have, that I've seen had increases when I suggested they take out the non-dominant. It's not that non-dominant doesn't work or isn't useful. It's that that's what they've been doing for the last six months or one year. Mm-hmm. So now when they take it out, maybe it gave them a chance to do more on the dominant side or it's the fact that there was just way fatigue way less fatigue present in their training sessions but then on the flip side of what you just said it might be interesting for those guys who haven't done it in a long time to now insert it back in and see if there's any changes there like yeah it's it's definitely interesting like I'm I'll be the first person to be prescribing it and start doing it if I think for sure it's something that we need to be doing. Well, you
1: know? See, now I want to follow up from that, Mike, because I, I and I get Mike that you live, I live in a world where guess what? I do research with these people and I send them on their way. You know, you're in the business of increasing swing speed and you do an incredible job at it. You know, when you're working with tour players or high level players, they need to see these gains come quickly and they need to see them be sustained. And so I, I totally understand that process. I, Again, I would I would love I would love to see again, because it's central nervous system training, right? Again, it's this idea of well, what if what if we do introduce it and then take it out and then bring it back in and then take it out like you just described, it'd be fascinating yeah. to see. And,
0: and to be honest, I think like one of the like the two kind of main I I guess gripes I, I had with how strongly some people were promoting non-dominant training was that one. There was just no published research on it. Mm-hmm. There was no, there was nowhere to read it. It was like, well, well, show, show me how it's worked, and I'm, I'm happy to read it and implement it. But that didn't exist. It's absolutely fantastic that you're now doing this. Obviously, like that's really, really good. And the other thing, to be honest, was none of the theories that people suggested made sense to me. They, they didn't hold water in terms of the you're only as fast as your brakes or. You know, um, the deceleration effect, like there was a lot of discussion went on around kind of why that is the case or why it isn't the case. They definitely didn't like stack up to me from a physiology standpoint or training standpoint in how they were better than like overspeed training on the dominant side. But I definitely like what you're introducing here in terms of the more motor learning side of things. Is it doing something in the brain and the nervous system? from an activation and recruitment standpoint, that might not be tapped into from dominant training. That seems like better to me than what was being promoted in the past, you know? And the last point then that I always kind of refer back to about non-dominant training, and it's funny because it's definitely something really interesting and that you can dig into a lot, where I usually fall back on is that I'm like, I just wonder if it makes that much of a difference either way. If, if someone's going, because like, obviously somebody's going to do it on their dominant side, because that's where they're going to get the skill transfer and it's, you know, a way more specific stimulus. So if they're doing that, what actually is the non-dominant side speed training adding? And that's something that I don't, I obviously don't know, you know, yeah. I, I would, I would love to.
1: Yeah. And, and that's where I think, you know, you, what you do with your programming, you do so much good multi-rotational training right? Where you're getting the trunk and the core to do things in both directions at different, you know, everything I see from you, you do that with, I think when we're creating these protocols, especially, you know, we're, we're trying to create protocols for people who are working with people like you, but also for people who aren't doing anything. And so from, from the flip side of that, I look at it and say, well, if at the very least, it's not going to hurt your speed gains, and you're not doing anything else in a gym type setting, um, man, at least it allows me to introduce something you're doing, getting that body to rotate that opposite side. Because like you described, you only get to play golf on Saturdays. The other six days of the week, you're interacting with your world where you maybe need to do both side rotations. And I think, you know, even just a standpoint of trying to get that into their exercise habits somewhere um, you know, I think can be helpful also.
0: Yeah, I think that's actually a really good point. If someone is only doing, like using the speed sticks and doing speed training as their form of training, I can definitely see how doing it both sides then has benefits, even mm-hmm. like simply just mobility benefits and, yes. and, and yeah. basic strength and power benefits for, for definite. Yeah. No, that's that's yeah. a good point. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think the summary on that is, like you can say what kind of you're thinking, but definitely interesting, but we just don't really know, like we need to, to study it more, really. Like, don't we? We need to dig a bit deeper and see what's
1: there. Yeah. I mean, I think this is a good first step um, and I think it's going to take good sound, you know, research to expand this and understand it more. I mean, even with my hypothesis, Mike, that feels really good to me as well. So I'm glad to hear it feels good to you, but, you know, I want to strap on, an EEG and just look at brain activation during yeah. dominant and non-dominant swings and see what kind of areas of the brain fire as a result. So I think it'll be exciting to, to maybe hopefully be a part of the person who, or a part of the conversation of who's trying to utilize data to answer that question either way.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I haven't swung left-handed in a couple of years, so I'd be interested to see if, if I went through the protocols just left-sided for the next three months or something, what would happen.
1: Your golf game's too important, Mike. I've I've watched the trajectory of your golf game. You're you're a player, so. uh, uh, But I, I, you know, you an N of one, you might be a perfect person. I'd be willing to experiment, yeah, to try try it for you know uh, four to six weeks, see what happens, right?
0: Yeah, that that would be interesting. Um, Okay, just a couple
1: more questions, Uh
0: Tyler. Have you got time?
1: Yeah, I do. Yep.
0: Okay, perfect. So, obviously, super speed uh has three different weight sticks, light, medium, heavy. In general, how does the speed of each stick compare to max effort driver swing?
1: Yeah, uh, so in terms of kind of what we typically see um, in those swings is that the lightest club, we tend to see or want to see it swung about 20% faster than a driver swing speed. Is
0: this hitting a ball or without a ball? Or Oh, good point.
1: I mean, yeah, yeah man i would say without a ball okay but so just a max effort swing just a max effort swing yeah, yeah, just yeah. a max effort swing it, which yeah so and we can get into i think there's some good discussion on 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 transferring this over to the golf yep. course and needing to take swings with a driver too uh, mm-hmm. as part of what we do but um, so about 20% faster with that green club Uh, Our lightest club, the medium club, uh, we we typically see it about 17% faster. And then the heaviest club is about 12% faster than the driver. It's what we typically see.
0: And obviously Um, this is same radar if you're swinging without a ball. Because sometimes if people trying to compare like a Trackman driver number from a fitting to the sports sensors Inc radar with their speed six. And I'm like, first of all, we need to standardize the radar because yep. uh, otherwise you're, you're kind of swimming around, you know, <laughs> it's, it's impossible. Okay. Well, so
1: Stan, I think you bring up the idea of like, if, if it were me and I want to compare this to my driver's swing, I'm not hitting a golf ball with, with these when I'm swinging them. So if we want to standardize things like the radar, we want to standardize the effort. We want to standardize the footwear, and the conditions. I mean, standardize as much as you can when you're measuring speed gains. Um, That's where I would see to, you know, this is maybe compared to what you would do without hitting a ball on the same monitor.
0: Of course. So what were the three percentages again? 20?
1: So 20% faster with the lightest, uh, 17% faster with the medium, and 12% faster with the red.
0: Okay, perfect. Um, Something that people have kind of asked me about or questioned is, why they might be better relatively with one than the other. They're like, man, I'm like, like if they they might have the same driver speed as one of their friends, their green sticks are similar, but their reds are very different, for example. Is that something that you've observed? And is there maybe different types of swing mechanics can lead to people being better relatively with a lighter rather than heavier one?
1: For sure. And so I've, I've, um, I've noticed that a lot. Um, just what you're describing. And I think the way you started to answer that are the things that I'm noticing, which when you get to that club, that's heavier. Um, I think to generate fast movements of it, I think you're going to have to utilize the ground better with the heavier club. I think if you're a golfer who like you described has some of maybe the, that early throwing of the hands motion, initiating the upper body, I think you can get away with that with lighter clubs and still generate a really fast swing speed. And I don't think you can get away with that with the heavier clubs.
0: Yeah, and maybe so, not get away with it with a golf club. With a with a yeah. a real golf? Yes,
1: club. for sure. And this is where it's it's interesting. So I'll I'll give you I'll, I'll take the hood off my golf game, Mike, which is slightly embarrassing. Well, it's 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 good it's okay. But I'm I'm a I'm a lead with the hands kind of guy. I always have been, which I'm working on now. Prior to having five children, I, I played to about a one handicap, so nowhere in your level, but. Now with five kids, you know, finding time to hit a golf ball becomes difficult, but I'm that kind of golfer. And interestingly enough, I can generate really fast speeds with the green and it took me a while to really crank up and see some, some, what I would expect to see swing speeds with the red club based on my driver's swing speed, um, because of my inability to initiate my swing with the lower body.
0: Yeah. That's interesting. I would say that I'm almost the opposite. Like when I compare myself to others, I tend to be like a little bit better, I think with the heavier ones than with the lighter ones. And my kind of ideas on that were that like my, I just have a kind of better strength background than a lot of Mm -hmm. people with similar swing speeds. So swinging the heavier ones, I had a little bit of an advantage. And then the other one is just the way I swing. Like I'm pretty like slow in the takeaway and it takes me a good bit of, it feels to me like I take a lot of time to, to build up to my max mm-hmm. speed, basically. um. Whereas some people, you know, they're much like they, like a John Ram is basically the complete yep. opposite to me. Like yep. he whips it off the ball, rips it down in transition. I'm very different. Like I'm longer, slower, and it takes a long time for it eventually to speed up and hit the ball. And I was thinking that might be kind of why some people yep. are, are different. Yeah, that's definitely I good. think you're
1: right. And I think uh, we'll know exactly what you do in the fall when you come visit. Exactly. Lab. No doubt so that. Would, that would be but great. What, one piece of that, Mike, that because I've found that interesting too, and I think we can become a little obsessive about what are the numbers of different speeds, right? I mean, we we love to say, "Hey, I swing this club this fast, or this one this fast." And so, just in my in some of my data sets where I've been able to measure, you know, driver swing speed and the um, and the super speed stick swing speed, I've just been kind of plotting correlations between the two to say where their correlations between these clubs, you know, if you swing this one fast versus this one and, and vice versa. And, and to your point of, uh, you know, I'm collecting all my driver data on track, man, and the speed sticks are swung with the PRGR. Mm-hmm. So that is a limitation of creating these correlations, but you They're see close pretty, though. If it's the new yeah, PRGR, they're true. very close. Yeah, and they are there. And we've seen that, I've seen that in my labs, especially for full swings, right? Especially for mm-hmm. those full swings. And and what I'm seeing in terms of these correlations to them in terms of speeds. Interestingly enough, the highest correlation to driver swing speed um, in at least my data sets that I've been looking has been the non dominant green swings. <laughs> interestingly enough. Um, again, all of them have some pretty decent correlations. All of them are above 0.3. The lowest is the red non dominant at 0.32. The highest is the green non dominant at 0.56 uh, in terms of those correlations. So,
0: very you know, interesting. That,
1: that's going to be something I'm going to track for a long time, yeah. because with those types of statistical analyses, you need really large data sets. Um, um, and so I think understanding that more, getting those speeds, correlating them, um, I, I think I think that'd be a cool thing to understand and know as well. But I that's, think you're right that it's it's swing mechanic based, I think. Okay. Of
0: yeah, I know that. That's good. And then just to follow up on that, I know this is kind of breaking outside the protocols, but I've talked to uh, Kyle ceo about this before as well before i got to know you and this is something that i've tried with some of the pros that i work with a bit more closely is that if they let's just say if a player relatively is better with let's say the green than he is with the red i tinkered with changing their training a little bit so they Mm. were doing more with the one they struggled with and this would kind of tie in with what you'd see in the strength and conditioning world in like a load velocity kind of profiling thing Mm if you've yeah. someone who's like say an exceptionally good squatter but their vertical jump isn't very so if you've someone who's trying to improve their uh let's say vertical jump and someone is a good jumper an an okay a good jumper but a poor squatter you'd probably try and get their squat strength up but vice versa if mm-hmm. uh someone was a very poor squatter and a and a decent jumper you you do the i don't know if i mix that up but you know what i'm saying you do the yeah. you do the one they're weaker at yep. basically yep. the one they're they're less good at and see if you fill in their deficiency. What do you think of potential for that with the speed six? If someone was really good with the light one but bad with the heavy one, yeah. do a little more with the heavy one.
1: Yeah, I, I think. Um, I mean, as you talk about force velocity profiling, I think to do that with with these clubs and see. I, I, I mean, I I love that from an exercise science background. Again, as we make protocols, right? We're making them for everyone, of course. Um, yeah. You know, we we do we do. Um, You know, in terms of some conversations with Kyle, I want to make sure that I didn't share anything that I wasn't not supposed to share. Uh, But there are some things uh, that are kind of coming out announcement wise, uh, hopefully in June, um, where I think my plans, Mike, as we start to gather more and more data uh, with some of our users, I'm, I'm excited to jump into that data and really start to peel back these layers of what you've just described, which is you know, if if they're struggling with this one, does that correlate to to worse gains? And what's leading to the best gains? Because I think that fine tuning of the training uh, could be a real piece that could allow uh, individuals to really gain some serious speeds. Yeah.
0: Are you familiar with JB Morin, the researcher in France? Have you ever heard of him? I'm not. Uh So he works in um, like sprinting is his main thing. Okay. And he's done like, it's kind of easy to see the transfer to swing speeds so he's done stuff with vertical jumping and sprinting and he's he's done what i butchered saying a second ago about (laughs) squat squat strength and jumping strength so you basically get the poor squatters to do more squatting and the Mm -hmm. poor jumpers to do more jumping um and see if filling in their deficiency helps them with their with their jump and he's also done something similar uh force velocity profiling with heavy um sled towing for sprinters. Okay. So he gets them doing basically body weight, just regular sprints all the way up to like very, very heavy sled towing and kind of seeing where their you know biggest drop-offs are. And he's like, Well, this is kind of where you're weakest, even though you've got the same sprint time as that guy, you know, this is where you're massively dropping off, and this is where he's dropping off. So they change their sled towing training based on kind of where their weakness is that's yeah kind of where we're trying to tie that in with with balancing out maybe heavier and lighter swings based on what your profile is like so that's something that is that has kind of good scope i think um just a couple more Mm -hmm. let's talk quickly about transferring speed gains with the sticks to driver Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. what have you seen here what do you think is important for people
1: yeah um so the study that i did the two study or the two studies I did were during golf season. I guess the first study was primarily golf season. The second one golf season was starting. Um, And so in terms of the transferability, like I didn't see changes in terms of, you know, swing mechanics or center of face contact or things like that. Right. If, If they, if they had poor swing mechanics before speed training, they had the same swing mechanics after Well, to an extent. There were, again, the sequencing and things improved and that stuff. But again, you know, if my club face is five degrees open and my path is three degrees across the top, that's pretty similar after speed training. Um, but in terms of so that transferability, I think, worked really well. They, they were able to generate the club speed with the drivers. I didn't see really that drop off. But I think partially that may be explained by the fact that I was doing it when these individuals were playing golf. Um, so when I think about speed training and I, and I think, you know, I've seen, I've seen your take on this and and I love this idea where it's like, yes, we love the idea of these varying, um, you know, speed sticks that varying weights and we're going to swing at varying speeds. And it's important sometimes for us to think about nothing else except for swinging something as fast as possible. But I also think that we need to swing our drivers and we need to swing our drivers fast too, as part of that training. Um, so, for example, my brother. So I, I'm the youngest of four boys. We have a, a golf trophy we pass around in the family. I've had the golf trophy for, uh, gosh, I, maybe 15 plus years. <laughs> um, and so when I started, in the one part of my game that was the poorest was I didn't hit the ball very far. Well, now I've increased probably my driver swing speed by about 12 to 14 miles per hour in a year. And all my brothers started playing golf with me, and they're like, "Hey, I know you're doing stuff with super speed. How do we get a set of those sticks?" And I'm like, well, go to superspeedgolf.com if you want to buy them. <laughs> I'm not giving you any discounts. Yeah, yeah. And um, my one brother bought them because he was so jealous about my speed gains. And he asked me, well, hey, what do I do? Because I feel like when I play, I just need to, I want to transfer it better. And I said, well, when you're done with your speed sessions, take out your driver. And even just dry swings without a ball, swing that driver fast. Um, and then when you can, get to the range and, and hit some drivers fast as part of your speed training. I, I think that's an important piece of the puzzle if, if we can do it.
0: Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. That's kind of what I've suggested in the past to people too, is that if they're doing it at home and they can't hit balls, is literally just insert a couple of driver swings Mm -hmm. into your protocol. I know that can be a little bit awkward for people depending on where they're swinging and stuff like that. And then I've also had people experiment with doing their speed sticks on the range and actually inserting like a round of like hitting three or five balls as say like an extra stick, if you get me. Um, Mm -hmm. which has been interesting too, just to try and, you know, almost get this copy the intent from the speed sticks to their driver and see what happens, because that sort of digs into like the, you know, the skill and almost coordination and even like confidence element of it, I think.
1: For sure. Yeah. No, I always do that in my own training, Mike. I, I, when I finish it, I grab my driver and whether I have time to hit balls, great. If not, I'll swing it in front of my PRGR and try and transfer that speed to it. I think that'd be a you know, a great thing for people to do.
0: Yeah, because so there's nothing better than seeing the driver clubhead speed I number. Mean, you kind of really know you're you're on the right track. Then it's basically yeah. Okay, yep. la- last one, Tyler, and then I'll um we'll wrap up. So we haven't touched on the C club that Super Speed mm-hmm. released. I don't know how long after they released the original three sticks, mm-hmm. but I know it was quite a while. Uh, yep. What is the theory behind this? How does it work? How is it different to the other ones? And well basically why should we use it or
1: yeah, yeah. So the C Club is it's a it's a counterweighted training club. So similar weights to the green and blue, but what it is 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 we've moved that mass behind the hands in a little kind of core that's about a hundred grams that sits behind the hands.
0: So it's on the top um, of the grip. It's on the butt of the grip. On the top of the grip, exactly.
1: yeah yep. And it's a one club system. Um, similar training protocols that you see. And, and, you know, we, we have those up and have revamped those slightly as well. when we change these. Um, and this is a club that at least in some initial testing, this was before I came on board, but so Kyle and, and Mike and some of their initial testing found some real benefit towards some of these kind of hand club mechanics, uh, hand speed, particularly, especially kind of delivering that through the impact zone, saw some really promising things. And so they said, "Hey, man, this is a this is a great thing. Let let's incorporate this into it. It can be used as a tool separately. It can be used in conjunction with the three club system." Um, and interestingly enough, Mike, on my radar has always been, I want to do a study on the C club because because I I see some theories biomechanically in terms of I'm altering inertias, I'm I'm moving applications of torques and adding torques to the club in and, and areas that might improve my my hand and club mechanics, which you described that already, how important that is. Um, but until I see data, I, I can't know for sure. So interestingly enough, my first data collection for that study is tomorrow. Um, and so I'm going to utilize the uh, the blast motion sensor uh, that measures hand speed. Uh, I'll be in a track man facility um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a series of golfers through just the super speed C club training protocol and see what happens to kind of the trajectory of that hand, the hand speed gains and how it's changing throughout that downswing, where it's peaking and then also get all of the club and ball metrics as well um, to kind of test those hypotheses.
0: When do you think we'll be able to read about that? That's really interesting.
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah, so that's, um, so I've, I'm, I've got six already on the docket scheduled. I'm hoping to move 20 through over the course of the next three or four months. I'm entering the summer at the university And I'm at a a university where in the summer, I don't have to do anything. So I'm going to play a lot of golf. I'm going to swim with my kids and I'm going to do a lot of speed research. Um, So I'm I'm hoping I'm hoping here by the end of the summer, I'll have some good data uh, that can help uh, solidify some of those things that we saw in small scale studies.
0: Very cool. That's really good. Tyler, is there anything I missed? Anything that you wanted to say that I didn't bring up or is there anything you can think of that um, we didn't cover?
1: Man, I, I really can't can't think of it. I, I think all the things we talked about covering, I, I really appreciate you kind of giving me a platform to to discuss some of these things I'm doing. I, I know I'm kind of new to the world of golf biomechanics, but definitely have done a lot of biomechanics research. And so it's fun to be able to talk about it. And, and I love talking about it with someone who's open minded like yourself and and can say, hey, let's 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 see what this data is saying and, and see how how we can increase this. And um, uh, so, yeah, it's, it's been a real pleasure to to speak with you today.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm definitely smart enough to not argue with PhDs in biomechanics. <laughs> After that, I can't say a whole lot, you know. Um, so, Tyler, obviously people can find out more about Superspeed at superspeedgolf.com. I think everybody listening would already know what Superspeed is. Um, tell us where they can find you on social media or website or anything like that.
1: Yeah, so uh, you know, I I, I do uh, tweet. I'm not a Mike tweeter, but I, I am I am starting to utilize Twitter more. So you can find me on Twitter um, at at tstandy84 or Tyler Standiford. Um, uh, as well as you know, I'm I'm happy to engage in in conversations throughout. So I don't know if you have any um, you know show notes or things you put out, but yeah. uh, but I'm 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 happy to engage. You know, via you know, an email and and Twitter or Instagram, you know, whatever we want to do. So I I love I love talking about this stuff. This, like I said, Mike, this this far surpasses beat watch or beats watching a seventy five year old <laughs> walk up a set of stairs.
0: Yeah, so, yeah. No, so that's perfect. Out. I'll I'll put all your stuff with this when it goes up on social media and email perfect. and all that. So yeah, Tyler, thanks a lot for your time. That was really interesting you're someone we'll definitely have to get on for a part two in maybe the later part of the year if you've some more stuff done and, you know, you have interesting things we can talk about.
1: I got some other cool stuff going on this summer as well. So I think hopefully there'll be some fun stuff to, to talk about later this year.
0: Thanks a lot, Tyler. Take care.
1: Thanks, Mike.